Welcome to the latest episode of The Grower and The Economist. I'm Michelle Klieger, The Economist. And I'm Peter Kanjoyan, The Grower. Each week, we team up to tackle the biggest challenges facing small and medium-sized growers. We're one part grower and one part economist, just like your business. Well, welcome to this episode of The Gate. Today we have a special guest, a professor of horticulture at Ohio State University, Dr. Michelle Jones. Michelle and I go back quite a ways and have worked together over the years on various projects and committees. And Michelle, welcome to The Gate, The Grower and The Economist. Would you take a moment and fill in or or share with our listeners your career path and how you got to where you are today, please? All right. Well, thank you, Peter. I'm glad to be here. So I appreciate the opportunity to visit with you and went to school at Iowa State. And there I studied biochemistry and determined that I wanted to focus more on plants and production and, and things that could be uh, used by growers. But rather than go the agronomic route, which is what most of my colleagues did in Iowa, I decided I had an interest in greenhouse and horticultural crops. I did some work in the horticulture department at Iowa State that let me work on carnations as a cut flower. And so that kind of set me on my path to work in horticulture. And after that, I went to graduate school at Purdue University, where I got my PhD uh, with Dr. Randy Woodson in horticulture. After spending a few years in Colorado, at Colorado State University, I ended up in Ohio. And when I worked with Dr. Dick Gladden at Iowa State, uh, he told me that all horticulturalists will find their way through Ohio State University at some point in their career. And I didn't really believe him, but I've been here at Ohio State for 20 years, and I'm currently the D.C. Kiplinger Floriculture Chair. So it's been a great uh, road and a lot of exciting things to come. Thank you for that, Michelle. And we have some commonality in our career paths. Dr. Dick Gladden, who advised you as an undergrad, was finishing up his Ph.D. at Ohio State when I started there as a master's degree. And he was very generous as a senior graduate student to help show me the ropes. So that was fun. And then the namesake of the endowed chair that you have the honor of of occupying was my uh, master's advisor at Ohio State, Dr. Kiplinger, affectionately known as Kip. Uh, Michelle Klieger, Michelle Jones has been sitting in the Kip chair, as those of us within the university refer to it. Michelle, let's, let's talk a little bit about formal training, as you said, was in post-harvest physiology, focused more on ornamental crops than edible crops. And over the past half dozen years or so, you've shifted your research focus, which is what brought us to you today. Describe for us or let's understand that shift and where you are now and what you're seeing in the in the future for your research. For many years, I worked on what could be described as post-harvest physiology with a focus on the genetics and molecular regulation of flower senescence and how that affects vase life and also how that affects the quality of ornamental bedding plants. So the focus was mainly on flower senescence, how ethylene and other hormones control the, the lifespan of a flower and what are the genes involved, what are the biochemical pathways. And that was a great 
experience, learning all those molecular tools, having that as a tools in my research toolbox, so to speak. And I've done that for many years and about uh, the lab still works in that area, but we've done a little bit of refocusing in, I would say about eight years ago, the OSU Floriculture Extension team were doing some outreach activities, communicating with industry, trying to find out what some of their interests were. We were involved in uh, doing a survey with the industry about biological products. We were interested in biocontrol, what type of beneficial insects were they using biopesticides, and also a little bit newer buzzwords, some of the, the biostimulants, these other products that fall somewhere outside of biopesticides, outside of plant growth regulators, and in a kind of a, a big unknown area where, where nobody has, has quite figured out what they are or what they do. And we, we discovered that there's a lot of interest from the growers in these types of products that can um, improve plant health. And while they were doing a lot with beneficial insects, kind of the gateway to biocontrol, our industry has adopted that and I think done very well with it. Many of them were also starting to use some biopesticides, biological fungicides. And there were a lot fewer of them that were using what we would call biostimulants, but there was a big interest. So working with a group that had formed here at OSU, um, which is called the Microbial Solutions for Agriculture, uh, it was part of our university's Center for Applied Plant Sciences, one of their original teams. That's really how I got involved with the OSU group who was identifying bacteria that had beneficial properties that could be used to enhance plant growth. And that and the commercial biostimulants, it all kind of fit together. It allowed us to work on all aspects of the science from the very applied growth plant responses in the greenhouse to getting down to that molecular work again and understanding the mechanisms. So I saw this as a nice way to take the program where we could be generating very useful, applicable information for short term for growers and also as a great training tool for graduate students that would come into the program because they can take a research pipeline from the beginning to the end and learn plant physiology, learn genetics, learn molecular biology, and learn to be really great horticulturalists and, and growers. And so that's a really long answer to your question, but that's kind of how the, the process has evolved. Thank you for that. So I kind of buried the lead, and I haven't mentioned till now that the topic of the episode is going to be this area of biostimulants that you touched on and that you're researching. The focus of our podcast, Michelle, is largely small to medium-sized farmers, greenhouse operators, and indoor vertical farmers. We're hearing our information more toward the smaller operation that you and I are quite familiar with on the floriculture bedding plant side of our industry. And we're finding that our listeners are quite up to date on some of these new practices, uh, whether it's organic or sustainability or or biologicals. We can learn a lot from you. Uh, let me kind of circle back to the beginning again and ask you if you would define the word biostimulant for us in, in two sentences so that we can then use that as a springboard for the rest of our conversation. Okay. Um, so there's a lot of different definitions out there, <laughs> but um, without giving you an official definition, 
um, which I think that the government and the farm bill is is still working on. And one of the things that we'll see over the next few years is is how that comes together. But I think of it as uh, any substance. So that's big. It can it can be anything. It can be microorganisms or other substances. Improve the quality of plants and improve their ability to withstand abiotic stresses, so environmental stresses. So that definition is broad and vague because it can't describe a biopesticide. It can't make claims of being able to enhance, even to be able to enhance plant growth, and it can't um, improve plant health, and it can't um, directly um, prevent disease. But what we see with biostimulants is that they are products that can improve the quality of plants, which indirectly is improving their health. They're more resilient and, and they're able to withstand pathogen pressures as well as environmental stresses. So I see a growth promotion and an abiotic stress tolerance as two benefits of biostimulants. Okay. Both of us in our programs have looked at silicon over, over our careers, likely. Is is silicon, because its its effect can fall under these categories that you're describing, is it considered a biostimulant? Um, I've seen some definitions that include elements like silicon. I've never really thought of silicon as a biostimulant. Okay. But it, it is an additive in a lot of different uh, growing media, and they might call it a plant enhance, enhancer or biostimulant. But kind of the definition of biostimulant, many would include it, but I think it, that's kind of on the edge of, yes. of what I think of as biostimulants. And, and the reason I ask is, is just to, to emphasize what you already did, that, that it's a complex maybe confusing title biostimulant and for our listeners Michelle it's, I think you agree that this is all unfolding in front of our eyes there's not been enough research done yet we're digging into it and a few minutes from now we're, we're going to talk a little bit about results and grower recommendations but for now can I jump in with a clarifying question Sure. Just tracking your career a little bit, your post-harvest physiology work was after the plants harvested, post-harvest, got that. But now the biological products and biostimulants, all of that is focusing while the plants are growing. That shift occurred, is that correct? That's, I think, a much bigger qualifying question than you think. Okay. Um, so I, I can answer that as briefly as I can. I see the benefit of biostimulants in the entire market chain. So no, we're not just studying production or post-production or post-harvest. Um, the benefit of biostimulants is really throughout. I see it as a producer important product. The biggest benefit that we've seen is for consumers, for that final customer, uh, because biostimulants are a substance or microorganism that's enhancing a plant process. And that's kind of the official farm bill definition. And I go back to that because it reminds me that it takes a little bit of time to see this response. And so when you're looking at bedding plants, for example, if you put in a biostimulant um, in, during transplant and you have maybe, depending what the crop is, four to eight weeks to finish that crop, you may or may not have time to see the benefits of that biostimulant 
in your production system. It's the resilience of that crop at post-harvest that is going to be your biggest benefit. That's a really big issue. And one of the things that we've been talking with growers about too is, is this worth my investment? And and there's a lot of things to consider. Yes, we're still focusing a little bit on post-harvest from before. So that's a kind of a holdover. We know how to do those kind of those studies. And we're, we're looking at using biostimulants during production and then figuring out where benefit is. Okay, now I want to shift gears a little bit. We've, we've laid the groundwork. It's complicated. It's broad. It's confusing. Now let's focus down and zero, zero in. Would you describe for us two or three at the most benefits to the crop that we can uh, see using some of these products? And then once you describe these are the reasons that we're using them, then I want to end the conversation talking with you about how are growers managing the biostimulants? How, how are they getting the most out of them? So okay. Like- so that's a hard question too, because biostimulants are so big. There's so many different products. They have different things that they're doing. Um, most of the products out there will include some kind of microbial ingredient, a bacteria or a fungi that has some beneficial effects on plants. So that's where we focused most of our attention. And three things I would describe as benefits would be the ability to um, be more resilient to stress, like water stress, low water deficit stress, maybe you would call it drought stress, that they might experience during shipping and retailing. They can rebound from that stress and recover a lot more than other plants. The idea of growth promotion is one that's the kind of a selling point for a lot of biostimulants. And so it depends what your plant is. If that growth is something that's positive, like shoot growth in um, ornamentals. Um, if it's more compact, thicker leaves, bigger leaves, thicker stems, and greener, which you often see with biostimulants, that type of growth promotion is positive. But if it's long, leggy, big uh, shoots, then then it's negative. So we we are seeing a lot of growth promotion in a, in a positive way. Third, the ability to reduce other inputs. So if I can grow a plant uh, with a lot less fertilizer and it looks as good as one with twice as much, that's where I think that the benefit to growers they can produce the same quality plant or better for their customer with lower inputs. Cool. Now where you and I have spent much of our careers on the ornamental side, Michelle, what you're describing, you know, you and I can close our eyes and we can see a flat of marigolds or petunias and in the garden center down further along the retail chain or in the consumer's garden, we get resiliency. Translate that for us to uh, let's say lettuce that's uh, being harvested, removed from its root system. I often say that a plant is a plant is a plant when I'm crossing over to the cannabis industry or from vegetables to ornamentals. So in this case, are we stretching that statement too far by saying, all right, with the marigold and its root system, we're seeing this benefit post-harvest, a harvested head of lettuce are we able to see the same thing? So with the harvested head of lettuce or say a fruit crop like tomato, 
the benefit would be that enhanced growth giving higher yield. And so for lettuce, that biomass translation is almost always positive. If you get more biomass in the shoot, the roots are able to take up more nutrients without expanding as much as they would need to. So that gives you more nutrient uptake. It also gives you more of the resources that the plant is able to devote to the shoot, to all the leaves, rather than expanding that root um, that root system. So I think lettuce is a really great one, actually. Great potential for biostimulants to improve yield. There's also some potential to improve the phytochemicals and some of the um, compounds that make this tissue healthier. It's not something I've really looked at, so I can't tell you if, if that, what evidence there is for that, but it's an area that I think has some, some great potential. And then back to a comment from a couple of minutes ago, regardless of the crop and the, the way we harvest it, reducing the inputs, if we can grow the same head of lettuce with less nitrogen and fertilizer, you're saying uh, that that's one of those crossover benefits regardless of the crop. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the greatest benefits overall for any of these crops that would be experienced by growers uh, that would choose to use these uh, biostimulant products and they all work differently on different plants so I can't tell you that all of them will give you this benefit but there is a potential there and there are ones that do 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 this and and that is the main effect of the biostimulant some of the beneficial bacteria fungi and other components is that it increases the efficiency of nutrient uptake it makes nutrients that are insoluble and unavailable to the plant available, then with that increased uptake translates to improved growth and yield. And then fewer nutrients leached from that system and lost and more of the nutrients that you applied actually becoming available and being taken up. So overall, um, a plant is a plant is a plant. I think the biostimulant side of that fits well with the, the concept of reducing fertilizer inputs. And Michelle Klieger, that's where the economics of it is easiest to explain and describe to growers. They can easily latch on to, well, if I'm using X percent less fertilizer and producing the same quality crop, that's money in my pocket. That's profit margin for me. Of course, that makes sense that comparing your cost of biostimulants to the cost of the inputs would be a easy cost of comparison to see how it helps your bottom line. And then I think taking it a step further, if you're talking about resistance to stress, especially that drought tolerance, whether it's the cost of water going up or fear of a cost of water going up, that would be an easy way to translate it into a budget as well. Um, but I think this year we're just seeing that there's not water available. And so how that impact might be able to keep you in business, not just in your numbers, but if you can grow more plants with less water, that has a big impact on your farm's overall production. And then, as you mentioned earlier, all of this matters for the consumer. Less inputs or fewer inputs and less water and more environmentally conscious and less runoff, I think are all messages that perform well, both in bedding plants and horticulture and ornamentals and vegetables, as well as row crop and broader agriculture. So. There's the place where it helps your budget 
easily pairing line items. There's the place where it could expand your business when you have finite resources like water. And then how does this work with consumers and whether it's that increased willingness to pay or switching product to products that have these features? We've all touched on water in this short conversation. I have a slide that I use in many of my presentations on sustainability and hydroponics. And it's, it, it says something like this as a message. In, in the near future, wars will not be fought over oil and fossil fuels. Wars will be fought over fresh water. And aren't we all seeing it almost play out in front of our eyes with the Colorado River out west, battle between whether it's going to San Diego and an urban uh, use or the farmers along the river's path from the mountains to the sea. Interesting. Just add that in in the Colorado River, Peter, we've talked about this before, but I just finished a project looking at agriculture and water use in the Colorado River Basin. And I can tell you that I feel like half of the interviews I conducted, somebody used the quote, whiskey is for drinking and water is for fighting, to the point where I told my co-author we had to put it in the final paper because it is just such a ubiquitous quote and it just is ringing more true with more people each year. Who would have thought? Okay, Michelle, let's now talk about, I call it the elephant in the room where you and I have heard from growers, let's take product X. One grower might have wonderful success and see results using this biostimulant product. And it could be cross town, same, same town, another grower doesn't see the benefit. Again, we're, we're living and breathing this research. It's unfolding in front of us. So explain that a bit. Where, where are we and where, we, where do we need to go? That's still the big elephant in the room. And I'm not sure that we've, we've dissected the answer to that much more than we, we knew in, in years past. But one of the challenges, we've done a lot of, not a lot, but some research with different companies and just getting products and trying them. We did a number of trials with say, 18, 20 products at once and found really only two that worked for us. And what I like to tell growers when I present that information is I'm not telling you that these products don't work, but under these exact conditions that I used for these experiments, we did not see any effect um, that was visual, that was statistical, that was a benefit for what we're looking at. So that's one of the challenges. There's a lot of products out there, especially those that have different microbial ingredients that may or may not work for all the crops that we're looking at. They may or may not work in a peat-based media if they were originally identified and all the research was done in soil. I think that's one of the challenges too, is a lot of the work um, has been done in soil-based agriculture and then smaller companies maybe are trying to move these products to their new greenhouse um, market, and there's just not enough information about how to really make them work in that system. So what growers really need to do to start is to have a relationship with these people selling these products and ask them what it's been tested in and, and to see actual research data results and to have an expectation of what they want to get out of the product and then look for something that has some proven results in the crops that they're interested in. 
and be prepared to do a little bit of trialing. Part of the problem could be with products that have living organisms or living organisms that have gone dormant, the stability of those, where was this product stored before they got it? Are they buying it directly from the manufacturer? Are they buying it through distribution centers, distributors, where the product may or may not have been sitting for a while under harsh environmental conditions? So that's one of the biggest challenges, making sure you're getting a good, uh, new and viable product that you store it properly, that you understand what its shelf life is and how to apply it. And some of the biostimulant products, depending on how they're acting, you have to apply them just once and then you see a benefit. And some of them you have to apply more than once. And because biostimulants aren't regulated by the EPA, there's not a lot of direction on what has to be in any kind of label. And so there's just not really enough information, I think, to use a lot of them properly. That's an excellent point, Michelle. Because of that lack of regulation, be aware, user be aware, beware, the, the, the manufacturer, the company, uh, because it doesn't, it's very easy to put a product on the market in this category of uh, inputs. That can be confusing. We've had a recurring topic on the podcast, Michelle, every now and then we return to it, and that is to have conversations uh, for our listeners about the proper ways to conduct trials in one's greenhouse, because much of what you're reporting to us is putting a little bit of the onus on the grower to learn how he or she is going to use this product. And as you're describing, they need to do some due diligence to make sure that it's a reputable product and, you know, inquire as to the, the storage and transport, all, all of that. But once the product arrives, how he or she is going to compare it to what they're doing is a, a whole topic for another conversation. You and I have had many discussions with colleagues about how we would set up some of these experiments to look at, for instance, the reduction in fertilizer input. That's easier said than done. And we have to be cautious, right? And, and growers need to be able to control their trials if they want good information. Yes. Now, let me, let me toss it to you, Michelle. We've, we've covered, what would you like to offer? Is there anything in the, the, this topic of biostimulants that, that you feel I haven't covered with you that you'd like to share? Really sure. I think we've covered most of the things. I do want just to follow up on the comment before. Putting all of this on the grower, um, you know, to trial and, and evaluate products, it, it's not really very reasonable. They're, they don't have time. They don't have people power uh, to do all these things. So it, we really do have to throw it back to the companies that if they're going to put biostimulant products on the market, they really do need to do the, the research in the crop that they're trying to market to, and they need to do third-party trials that are outside their company and provide really solid information to the growers. And I still recommend that they're gonna try these new products on a small number of plants and and all the different plants and, and do kind of the trialing, the checking, but they shouldn't be asked to set up a big experiment to to do the work of the companies that that need to be figuring out how these products work 
And the idea that biostimulants aren't regulated by the EPA, I think things will be changing. There's going to be a lot more that's going to be required to get these products out there. So hopefully that'll be good for growers because then they should have a little more information. One of the other concerns is always with safety and the the biologicals, bacteria, the fungi, and things that are going into these products. You know, growers also need to know that those are safe for themselves and for their employees because they're natural, but they're not, nothing's known about them. We can't be confident that they're safe. Those are good points. Thanks for the clarification, Michelle. To illustrate several of the points that you're making, I'm currently working with a small company with a biostimulant product. And I'm three experiments into the project, and it's very frustrating because I've not yet shown what they've claimed that they're seeing anecdotally from from growers using their product. Li- living through what you and I are discussing here, so so the frustration for me is first I'm questioning how whether I'm doing things properly. You know, once I simmer down and settle down, you know, the answer to that is yes, you're being very careful in what you're doing. So then the frustration from the company is, well, we're spending this money and we're not seeing any of these results, Peter, what's going on? And it's um, it's like we're chasing our tail at times. To your point, the company should be doing some of this research and this, this one is, but they're looking for immediate payback for their research dollars and they're not getting that currently. And I'm almost at the point where I'm considering stepping out of the project because it's just too frustrating on, on both sides. So anyway, the, the carrot is we'd love to do the research to be able to document and show and better understand these products and, and that will happen. I think I agree with you that if if we get to some point of EPA regulation, registration, et cetera, that's going to be a good thing from the grower's perspective. Uh, we'll hear from the companies that it then adds costs to bringing the product to market, but for the grower's benefit, more, a higher percentage of these products will then be proven. Is that, is that how you're seeing it? Yeah, and I think that there is going to be costs from companies, and they may have to focus on a few products where they may have had you know, quite a few um, in in their pipeline before. You're right. The research is a challenge and I've gotten products too to test and not gotten the results that the companies have said they've seen. And, but then when I've asked, well, what did you see it on? You know, we saw an increase in girth in a tree. Well, it's, it's not anything like what they're trying to get you to do and to expand and and to do that experiment and test all the different parameters it is a lot of time and money and then it also begs the question of if it's that finicky and the conditions have to be that precise it's really not going to work that well for most people so we've kind of taken the approach that we've trialing a lot of different products under the conditions that we grow things the peat-based media, the media we use, the fertilizer we use, the plants. And if it doesn't work for us, it doesn't work for us and we move on. And like I said before, I'm not telling anybody that the product is no good and it doesn't work. But under our growing conditions, and, and we really just don't have the time to try to figure out exactly how to make it work. 
coin with two sides. On, on one side of it, it's it's very exciting area. It's us learning more about nature and the microbial world. But then on the flip side of the coin, it's still at the point where it's so new to us that it's frustrating until we unlock some of the mysteries. Mm -hmm. Well, Michelle Klieger, do you have anything that you'd like to add as we wind down the conversation? Yes. Last year, I spoke with a company similar to the ones that you guys are discussing. And in our conversation, there was our conversation focused on how consumers are better able to understand these products because of our expanded vocabulary around the pandemic. When you're talking about exponential growth and you're, you know, you're seeing the impact, those words and concepts uh, that it's almost like our science literacy has increased a little bit. So I guess I'm wondering if you have seen that or if that's something you've thought about at all in your work and if so you know will that change the adoption i think a lot of consumers and growers there's a lot of baggage around our general fertilizer and herbicide and pesticide language and so is this an opportunity to reinvent this space or is it just what's new and next and different I haven't really thought about it from the standpoint of the pandemic increasing our scientific literacy in general. I don't know if I agree with that. I feel like there was a lot of misinformation out there and, and people, some people have increased their scientific literacy and some um, have kind of maybe gone the other direction. In general, horticulture and growing plants has really gained headway during the pandemic with people being at home and people interested and, and people buying things online, growers being creative and finding different ways to, to sell their products. But the bottom line, and I think that you mentioned is there's a lot more interest in making sure these are sustainable type products that they're getting. And so they're interested in the concept of reducing fertilizer because fertilizers, you know, they're not that great for the environment. We have runoff, we have problems, and and making fertilizers is very energy um, intensive. And so, if we can reduce that, I think that that's a positive. Nothing against fertilizer companies, because fertilizer is really, really important. <laughs> so we don't want to tell anybody they can't use fertilizer. But can you use it more efficiently? Can you use water more efficiently? All those things are very positive. And so I think that maybe people are, are thinking about that a little bit more when they're home and kind of thinking more about the impact of what they do. Very well said. So Michelle, I'm going to wind it down and I, I want to thank you very much for taking time from your busy schedule to join us uh, for this recording session. 